After attracting nationwide attention, Senate Joint Resolution 39 failed in committee last week, and State Representative Mike Colonna had a role in torpedoing the proposed constitutional amendment. The St. Louis Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. And I truly can't think that one sin is greater than another sin. That's not me for me to decide. I look to somebody else to decide that. That's State Representative Jim Hansen, a Republican from Frankfurt, during a committee hearing on SJR 39 last week. Yeah, it is not part of our theme song. It is not part (laughs) of our theme song, and he is not our guest this week, but he will play a big role in our show. Hello, I am Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, and this is the Politically Speaking Podcast. Joining us in studio today is... Joe Manis. And our special guest who is on the Emerging Issues Committee and saw that speech live we have as our special guest. Mike Colonna from St. Louis. A state representative from the city of St. Louis. Um, welcome. Or your second time on the show. And uh, this is your last term, last correct. few weeks. Last few weeks of relevancy. We're going to make your last few weeks of relevancy count in earnest here. <laughs> Thank you. So you're a member of the Emerging Issues Committee. For our, for our listeners to give a little bit of context, SGR 39 was this proposed constitutional amendment that would have legally shielded business that deny— And individuals. And, and individuals that deny services to same-sex couples. You were there at that committee hearing. You voted against it, obviously. Tell us a little bit— kind of about what it was like when that amendment failed, what it was like when Representative Hansen made a speech, and what you said before the entire thing went down. Sure. Um, first of all, I want to thank you guys for having me back on the show. Um, it's you, you guys do good work. Um, you're able to disseminate information to folks about what really goes on at the Capitol, and I do think that's important. Um, regarding the hearing, you know, we were supposed to take a vote on that constitutional amendment a week or two before we actually did. And on the day that we were supposed to take a vote, um, the speaker asked the chairman if he would postpone the vote for at least a week to give members the opportunity to sift through some additional information. And I want to go on record to say that that, that's exactly what happened. Um, What was the additional information? Well, we had gotten a few legal memos from Hush Blackwell and Columbia University uh, regarding some of the drafting errors and potential unintended consequences of SJR 39. And I would tell you that for most of the members on the committee, um, those memos were significant. They wanted to make sure they sifted through it before they voted. But it was kind of one of those scenarios where, you know, counting votes as an insider, I knew that those memos weren't going to change anybody's vote, that we would still have the six votes needed to kill it. And, And I'll tell you why. The three Democrats on the committee, regardless of what memo came out, regardless of what big business or small business wanted, we all firmly believe that the only thing SJR 39 did was entrench discrimination into our Constitution. Um, And and bottom line, that it was a thinly veiled attempt um, to call something religious liberty when really it was a small segment of the population that disagrees with gay marriage and don't want LGBT citizens to have the same equal rights as other folks. But you set that aside. Um, the, the three Republicans that voted no, um, Representative Ann Zayer, 
you know, she's a little bit older than me. She's worked in politics before. Um, some say she was a Democrat at one time. Now she's a Republican. Pretty moderate middle of the road. She has that life experience that we would hope folks have when they get to the General Assembly so that you don't make rash decisions. Um, with Ann, it, it was a huge, huge issue with the business component. You know, she saw what happened in Indiana, South Carolina, Mississippi, North Carolina, and decided that unless we took out that business portion or protections for individuals, it's something that she could not support. Uh, Representative Rowden was the same way. Although, with Representative Rowden, there's the added element of running in a Senate race against a very progressive Democrat in a very progressive district. So I will tell you that Representative Rowden uh, voted his conscience, but that pending general election in, in November um, really, I think, played into his decision-making process. Let me give a little bit of context for what you're talking about. State Representative Stephen Weber, the Democrat who is running against Caleb Rowden um, in the 19th Senatorial District, um, has been a pretty strong proponent of LGBT rights going back to his first election in 2008 when it wasn't necessarily something that even Democratic candidates did. So his record on that is pretty strong, and I don't want to make any theories here because I haven't talked with Representative Rowden at all, but it may have been a way to maybe triangulate the issue a little bit. Well, that's a good way to put it, triangulate, because again, you know, talking to Caleb, you know, off the grid, uh, the business portion, the individual protection was really something that he had real heartburn for. So I think he was able to parlay that pending general election into a message. And that message is, hey, you know what, I, I, I firmly disagree with protecting individuals and businesses in a scenario like this. Um, but I also want to be reflective of what the voters in this Senate district would really want. Right. So and it I, nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, I, I, and our listeners should know that 19th district takes in Columbia, Missouri, which is arguably the Berkeley of Missouri. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so having it. not talked to him, I, I, I want to just make clear that I'm going to take his word for his reasonings on that. Now, I want to play... And, and again, I can vouch for him. And, and regarding Representative Hansen... And I was going to... Before you talked about him, I'm mm -hmm. actually going to play a clip of what he said okay. before he voted no. I have family. It's in this situation. But I love him as a Christian, not as her judge, not as his judge. I don't, there's a lot of sins out there. Every bit as great as what people say this sin is. So I'm not, the, I'm not the one to be the court and the judge and the jury. So I actually kept in the, the pauses for emphasis on that because it was pretty clear from listening to his whole statement that it was a pretty emotional moment for him. So that's what he said. What was your reaction when you saw him make that statement? Well, <clears throat> well, Jim and I had had some frank conversations maybe a week or two weeks before the vote where, you know, I, I walked in to talk to him about the issue and, and, and I handled it the way I handled it with the other committee members. That is, look... I'm not here to, to beg or grovel for a vote. I'm here as a resource. I'm here to answer questions if you have them, whether they're legal, um, whether they're business-oriented, or whether they are questions that deal about, you know, having an, an LGBT friend, relative, or whatever. 
Um, the, the, the interesting thing is, and, and this happened with Representative Zayer and, and, and Rowden in addition, and that was our conversation really seemed to segue into how Christians are supposed to react to something like this. Is Does this SJR really reflect true Christian values? And, and I'll give you two examples. One, if we want to protect religious liberty, and Jim references this in, in his comments, why is it that we just pick one quote-unquote sin, that is same-sex marriage? There are other sins that are out there too. Divorce, getting remarried, um, cheating on your spouse, uh, depending upon which testament, eating pork. If it was truly religious liberty that we wanted to protect, why didn't we expand the class of folks who would be quote-unquote protected by that SJR? The other point that we discussed, and it seemed much more important to all six members that voted no, was again, is, is this truly how Christians are supposed to act and react? And, and Jim was spectacular at explaining his belief and his philosophy that, you know, Christ is the one that reached out to the sinners, that reached out to people to bring them into the fold. And we are finite beings as humans. Who are we to judge? And, you know, you, you heard Jim reference that he's dealing with this personally. And, you know, that is something I think that is personal to him and his family. But I don't think it's unique. I was just going to say, because I think that maybe the reason why SJR 39 garnered so much opposition, even maybe from some Republicans, is that as more gays and lesbians have become more open about about their sexuality and who they are, and they are people's families, friends, neighbors, and it becomes more part of their lives, it just seems like issues like this become a little bit more confusing on why they need to be done because they become so ingrained in relationships with these people. Is, is that maybe what's going on here? Oh, I, I think that's exactly what's going on. And, you know, I was the first person to speak at the committee hearing, and I wanted to set the tone. The tone I wanted to set was, I get it. I understand. A lot of folks don't understand LGBT issues. A lot of parents don't. And that's why I shared the story about my own mother when I told her, looking at me and asking, you know, gosh, what did I do wrong? How do we fix this? It's hard for that generation, and even the generation immediately before me, to, to comprehend and understand because they've never dealt with it. But when you have a loved one come forward like that and confide in you and, and, and bring them into your fold and ask for love and support, I think those stereotypes, those fears, that true ignorance is broken down. Um, and I... I want to take a minute to to thank some of the trailblazers that came before me in the General Assembly. You know, Jolie Justice, Jeanette Mott-Oxford, um, Zach Wyatt uh, from Kirksville. Um, we were able to work together for years to try and break down some of those stereotypes and put a face on this issue that people were just truly ignorant about. And I'll give you a specific example. I have had several Republicans come to me and basically thank me for just being there. And, and one, one person actually said, you know, you've changed my heart, you've changed my mind on these issues, 
to the point where if I were running in a primary back home today for the first time, I'm not sure I could get elected because I would come out and say we shouldn't do things like SJR. Well, that's what I think is kind of interesting about the Hanson situation. Um, he represents a swath of northeast Missouri, which I assume in 2004 voted overwhelmingly to ban gay marriage. He won election by defeating arguably the most socially conservative Democrat in the Missouri House, Paul Quinn. So I don't I think that maybe when he joined the General Assembly, I, I don't know. I have never actually talked to him before, but he clearly is not from like a suburban swing district where his vote would be, you know, obvious. I think it kind of caught people by surprise because he is a rural Democrat. Well, I think <clears throat> Okay, while some of us talk about the issues, the change of heart, perhaps because people know uh, people who are from the LGBT community and who um, are more open than they used to be, and I think that's part of it. I think, frankly, in some degrees, the uh, people who are willing to step forward 25, 30 years ago and, you know, and, and, and be open about the, you know, um, their, how their life was— I think that affected things because you started having um, it began to change when people began to talk about it as opposed to never talking about it. And I think there's that. But I think then that meshed with uh, a militancy. And I'm not knocking it because, I mean, that in some cases how that's changed on the economic front where you've got people who are saying, you know, we're not going to shop at this place if they're going to do this or or if, or if I'm an artist, I'm not going to display my work or I'm not going to hold my concert in this in this city or this state because of the way they treat people. And I think that's had an impact. I really do believe that it's the economic impact that it's really played a role in the last few years. And when you see what's happened in some other states, in North Carolina and others where there have been um, – recent laws passed or put into effect that were considered um, uh, anti-gay rights. Um, I th the, the effect that that's had, I think, in Missouri, where you've got the Missouri Chamber, is telling them, don't vote for this. I mean, let me tell you, I can't even imagine five years ago Missouri Chamber saying, don't vote for this. Yeah, well, and, and, and they and sure didn't do that in 2004. 2004, um, the business community and the social conservatives we're either on the same page or the business community was silent. That is not true anymore. And I don't think it's just because people's hearts were changed. I think it's also the pocketbook being affected. Well, and I want to publicly thank Dan Meehan <laughs> and, and Jason Hall at the uh, local chamber for their help in defeating this. I think this is the first issue that I've been on the same side with the chamber in my entire eight-year tenure. Mm -hmm. But but what you just said, Joe, really, I think, segues in, into – one issue that we haven't talked about, and, and that is we can't discount what Representative Sharon Pace said at the hearing. Now, Sharon is the only African-American member on that committee. Um, before Sharon spoke, uh, Representative Cross from Kansas City uh, took the floor and, and basically said, I don't get it. Look, if Baker X doesn't want to bake you a cake, go to Baker Y. It's not that big a deal. Why would you want to persecute Baker X because he won't bake you a cake? Well, Sharon started tearing up and reminded the committee, we've been here before. It was me that you were telling, couldn't go to that bakery, couldn't sit at that counter. 
couldn't drink out of that same water fountain or had to go to separate bathrooms. It truly is a thinly veiled attempt to discriminate against people. And this, the, the whole let the people decide. Are you kidding me? Let the people decide if they want to instill discrimination into our Constitution? No. Representative Pace hit the nail on the head. This is discrimination at its worst. And I think down deep, all the committee members know that. But you've got people who, you know, will still vote party line and, and politics comes into play. You know, there's a rumor going around. I don't know if it's been substantiated, but a few days before the Senate greased the SJR through, uh, Ted Cruz and Jeff Rowe paid a visit to the Senate. Let's get her done. Let's get it out there. Let's get it on the ballot so that we can, you know, gin up our base. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but... It sure makes sense because when you have, when you have such powerful arguments, the, the social arguments, this is discriminatory. It's wrong. You shouldn't do this. The economic arguments that you hit on, it's going to tear apart Missouri businesses. If we're going to lose jobs, we won't be able to attract the top-level candidates. When you've got those solid Republican arguments working in your favor, but yet the party's still pushing it, it makes you wonder. Is this, an, is this a nefarious attempt to drive out votes? Well, I think in some ways what you're seeing, and I want to emphasize, I'm just looking at the, I mean, I'm, I truly am not getting, trying to get, not getting my emotions into this. I'm just looking this, at this very coldly. But you see what is going on in the Republican Party right now, where frankly, there is a huge, huge fight going on between the social conservatives who have a coalesce behind Ted Cruz um, as the as the last stand against Donald Trump, and and without getting into t Trump's views on this and other stuff, which is kind of murky, but the point being is that you've got many Republicans who see Trump actually representing because he's a businessman, um, uh, either even though he doesn't talk about it, that he may be representing the business community or at least people who are willing to accept. Um, the, the business community willing to accept him versus the social conservatives have decided that, well, Ted Cruz is like the last, you know, if we can't get Ted across, we're going to be stuck with, with Trump. And I think that this whole fight over SGR 39 ended up being bled into, tied into this, even though people didn't talk about it. I mean, everything I heard, that's because there, I had heard the same talk you did. I don't know if it's true or not, but it really doesn't matter. The, the point being is that many social conservatives felt that it was important to get this on the ballot, not just for religious reasons or their conscious reasons, but also some believe for political reasons because they thought it could really help uh, gin up turnout. I mean, in 2004, it really ginned up turnout in the August primary because that's when it was uh, on the ballot, and many believe that's why Governor Bob Holden in the Democratic side lost to Claire McCaskill for the governor's nomination because so many conservatives came out and supposedly some of them be, uh, took the Democratic ballot in order to punish Holden for putting it on the ballot in August instead of November. My point being is that there's a lot of stuff that goes on that's politically uh, connect, that has a political element to it that on its surface may look like it has nothing to do with this, but when you start getting below the surface, it does. You're right, and... and there were a number of us in the General Assembly that were communicating with the governor's office that, that this, if, if the SGR actually made it through, please put it on the November ballot. 
Because I, I really believe what you saw in the General Assembly is a reflection of what would have happened in the general election. We would have squeaked by a defeat. But I think with, with so many folks having the experiences that we talked about earlier, we would have driven turnout to defeat the SJR and, and swing Missouri for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, so I want to segue into the fact that if somebody went to a baker or a florist or a photographer now and they were denied service because they were a same-sex couple, there would be no penalty in Missouri because right now sexual orientation and gender identity are not part of the anti-discrimination laws. And by mean no penalty, it means that if you were denied service, there would be some sort of legal redress that you could do um, to get restitution based off that. Similar if you got fired because you were gay or denied housing because you're gay. It's the, the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act. So after the defeat of Senate Joint Resolution 39, do you think there's more momentum to change that? Or do you think that there may be some extra intransigence from the social conservatives on mm. that issue? Let me think about this. Uh, will this help Mona pass? No, not at all. Yeah. Um, and, and let me rephrase what you said a little bit sure. just so that, that listeners can, can come at this from a different angle. Sure. Presently, if I'm fired or if somebody refuses to bake me a cake because of my sexual orientation, can I go out and file a lawsuit? Sure. Anybody can file a lawsuit. But if you file it in a Missouri court, here's what's going to happen. Yes. The judge is going to tell you, sorry, Mike, you don't have what we call a cause of action. Yes. Therefore, I'm going to dismiss your case. That's what I meant. You can, you can file a lawsuit, but it's going to fail almost it automatically. It is going to fail. Now, you could, you could argue that federal statutes give you protection, but they really don't. Mm -hmm. So you'd have, you'd have to have a pretty, pretty uh, ingenious legal argument to say that constitutionally your equal protection rights are being denied. But that's a federal issue, not a state issue. And when your damages are, you know, $100 because they didn't bake the cake, nobody's going to file that lawsuit. Lawsuits are expensive. Yeah. And it's, that's the frustrating part that, that Missouri doesn't allow any redress for the courts or through the courts if you're fired because of your orientation or if somebody doesn't Well, the interesting case. thing is when proponents of SGR 39 mentioned other states where the cake baker was getting sued, it wasn't because of osmosis that that happened. It's, it's because, because their laws allowed it. It's because there's anti-discrimination laws that says you can't do that, which were passed by a legislature, signed by a governor, which went through a normal democratic process. So that's one of the things we asked uh, Ander last week. I don't have the exact clip of that, but it seems like if that ever occurred in Missouri, it would be because the legislature through their elected representatives or through a ballot initiative wanted that to happen. That's one of the things I was a little confused about when I was hearing the proponents of SGR 39 talk about that. Did that confuse you at all as well? Well, I guess it depends on how you define confuse. I would say that it doesn't matter. You know, and, and the senator's a true believer. And what I mean by that is it's not a game for him. You know, and, I, and I, I really don't think he was looking for political points. You know, perhaps that's part of the computation. But I, I really believe him when he says this is a shield, not a sword. So I haven't heard the interview, but, but I would garner to say that the senator said, well, that's why we need to pass this shield. So when those folks are added to the non-discrimination laws, we already have a shield to protect us. Yeah, well, cause I, uh, but I've been maintaining, as I said earlier, I think there was a big political aspect to mm -hmm. this, and I think this was in part to galvanize uh, a certain part of the GOP base because, as Jason pointed out, 
even without it, I mean, Missouri is not a state where if you're if you're discriminated against on on your sexual orientation that anything's going to happen. You can't get through the courts. So, and I was surprised that that wasn't pushed that much publicly. I'm sure privately businesses were telling um, legislators that, saying, "Look, don't vote for this. It's not going to change things." I mean, well, it's it's a hard soundbite. Right. It's 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 a concept that's hard to put into a ten second. Oh, I get it. Type of a thing. Yeah. Um, it's employment law. It's 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 pure legal mumbo jumbo. But it's important. Like, but of course, it, it's, it, important. it's very important. It, it's, but it's the inside baseball. Yeah. That's the type of inside baseball that yes, we talk about as legislators. Mm-hmm. But you put it out there on the radio. You can't put it on a TV ad. You can't do you know a fifteen second blurb. People will just go like, what? Yeah, I've asked you this the last time you were on the show about whether the opposition to Mona is really about fear of quote-unquote, frivolous lawsuits, although I'm not really, I'm sure that was an argument when the Human Rights Act was passed in the 80s or the 70s when they added all, you know, sex, religion, race to those anti-discrimination laws, or whether it's just uncomfortableness among legislators with 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 homosexuality. I mean, what do no, you think? No, I, I think the problem, and, and I'm not... I'm not slamming anybody's public policy goals, but I think part of the problem has been that for the past six years at least, uh, the Missouri Chamber has tied this issue to changing the standard to prove discrimination in our discrimination statutes, our employment discrimination yeah. statutes. Yeah. Presently, the standard is if, if the reason you're fired has anything to do with your race, 5%, 10%, yeah, I, I fired you because you're late to work, but daggone it, you know, I 10% fired you because you're black. You can still make a claim. You can still file the lawsuit. You can still win the lawsuit. The chamber wants to change the standard to where it has to be the primary reason yeah. why you were fired, mm-hmm. 50 plus 0.01%. Mm-hmm. Who makes that determination? A jury. You know, what, what's, what's the better standard to have? I ask people to ask them the following questions. What level of racism is acceptable. Is 50.01% acceptable or is 0% acceptable? If 0% is acceptable, then we leave it the way it is now. So again, that's been the chamber's position. It's been tied to Mona for the past couple of years. Hey, look, you change the standard. We'll lift the restraints off Mona and let the body vote on it. Um, would Mona actually pass the General Assembly now if it got to the floor? I'm not sure. Um, it would be the SJ39 debate on steroids. Right. Um, you know, the Senate's a little bit more conservative now than it was a couple of years ago when it came out. I just don't know. I, I just have to ask this question before we move on to, you know, the end of the legislature. When I was talking with a couple of law professors about this, I got the sense that as far as people filing a lawsuit because they're denied a wedding cake or uh, you know, photography services, it's like 12 instances across the country ever. Um, and <laughs> right. that was kind of a, 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 a it, was, it was used by both proponents and opponents. Like, why do we need a constitutional amendment for this very rare instance? But I guess my question as, a, as an attorney, would you ever foresee a situation if somebody was denied like wedding services or any public accommodation where they would actually file a lawsuit or would they actually just move on to someplace that actually wants their business. Like, do you, do you see that the, the fears of SJR 39 proponents actually being realized if, it, if, if Mona was passed? Well, that's, 
what we would call in the legal arena speculative. Yes. Um, but you know the answer is I don't know. I mean I think it's it's very easy to say that if you're from St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Springfield, Kirksville, um, Cape Girardeau, it's very easy to walk down the street to the next Baker photographer, Applebee's, or whatever. However, if you're in Knoblick, Missouri, you know where where maybe there's one Baker, and the nearest bakery outside of Knoblick is maybe 50 miles yeah. away. That person's in a different set of right. shoes, right. you know, right. and right. what are their options? But I don't think it's you shouldn't underestimate one thing, mm-hmm. and that is the power of political consultants. Mm-hmm. If you're a conspiracy theory, you think to yourself, huh, term limits are great because I, as a political consultant, can keep coming back year after year after year with the same bad idea and try yes. and educate folks and make them think it's a good idea. So with here's how that group. works. Yeah. Let's create an issue. We need a shield for religious freedom. Let's sell it to a couple senators and representatives to take it and run with it. Now I'm going to go to some conservative groups and say, as a political consultant, I need to get paid so I can help you get this through the General Assembly. We get it through the General Assembly, then as a political consultant, gosh, I need to get paid so we can make sure that this passes a statewide ballot. Now, I know that I got paid in the first place (laughs) to sell this to a few representatives and senators, but again, with term limits, the folks that remembered I did that before are gone. Mm-hmm. And it, it is it has become a culture where political consultants, yeah, I won't go as far as say run an issue like this, but they drop the trial balloon, they look for people to pick it up, then they go to folks to help pay to get it through the General Assembly, and then they go to folks to make sure that it gets on the ballot, and then they go to folks to say, let's make sure it passes in August or November. That's just wrong. And I think term limits is one of the main reasons why that occurs. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, and that segues nicely into our, our next topic. You are actually going to be leaving the Missouri House after this year. You are termed out. Um, I guess there's been some speculation about what you're going to do next. You, I guess, could run for a state Senate seat down the road. You could run for alderman. My favorite uh, thing that I've completely made up <laughs> is you could run for sheriff mayor, which is not a real office, but it's a joke that me well, and— Well, he could run for secretary of state. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a joke that me and the 15th Ward Committee went, woman uh, joke about on Twitter often. But before we talk about your future, I want to just get your, your overall impressions of being in the Missouri House for eight years from when you started to now and kind of what's changed, what's stayed the same, and— what you kind of expected in your last couple of weeks? Well, there's, there's one, one huge change that I can point to, and that's the way House Republican leadership operates. You know, for the first six years, I was used to a speaker that would go to his caucus and say, here's what we're going to do. And if you don't want to do it, there will be repercussions. With the resignation of Speaker Deal, I think there was kind of a backlash by the Republican caucus, where they wanted a speaker uh, more in tune with with the way Todd Richardson operates. Um, Todd is a leader in his caucus, but he also listens to his caucus. And, you know, a lot of folks would complain that Todd didn't take a leadership role with SJR 39, that he should have even, that he should have either pushed it to be passed or pushed it to be killed because their caucus was truly split on it. But Todd's approach was, you know, I'm your leader, but I'm not going to dictate to you how you should vote on this. So let's go through the process that we have. Let's have committee hearings, one, two, three, four, however many you need to make up your mind. And then if the committee wants to strip it down, uh, clergy only, great. The committee wants to push it forward this way, great. Let's get it through the committee process. If it hits the floor, we'll come back 
and address the issue of where am I on this and whether or not I should assist doing X or Y. But that's been the biggest change. And, you know, I think what that has resulted in, um, ironically, is a Republican caucus that's more fractured because it's, it's almost like the, the iron fist of a Tim Jones <laughs> or Steve Tilley um, kept the jihadists at bay. But, but Todd's leadership skills are, are different from the standpoint of if you're a jihadist you know, and, and you want to have your day, you can have your day. Doesn't mean that I'm going to support it and it's going to pass, but I'm at least going to give you the opportunity to take advantage of the system and do what you're elected to come down here and do. Um, you know, aside from that, I, I think the primaries have gotten more vicious to where we have seen on the Republican side more extremely conservative members, and on the Democratic side, more extreme liberal members. This, this may be odd for you to hear, mm-hmm. but I would garner if you took a look at my voting record. Now, with our caucus, I'm probably one of the more conservative Democrats yeah. when it comes to votes. Yeah. And, it, and it wasn't that way back in 2008 when we had 70-something Democrats. We still had a rural caucus. Yeah. We had a pro-life caucus. We had a pro-gun caucus, all within the Democratic caucus. And then they, now, all, they all lost. We're yeah. pretty homogeneous. Yeah. We're, we're all pro-choice. We're all, for the most part, anti-gun. Um, we still have some pro-life Democrats, Ben Harris, uh, a few folks from St. Louis County. But, you know, again, somebody like me, a moderate from St. Louis City, is, is now one of the more conservative yeah, I, members of the I don't caucus. think you were seen as a moderate when you were elected. I sure wasn't. No. <laughs> but, but, I mean, looking at the Democrats for a second, because we've been focusing on the Republicans, in part because they have such a huge majority huge. In, the, in the House and Senate that they or dictate, you know, and, and, and that's that's the way it works. That's the political system. There's nothing wrong with that. But for the Democrats who are in this, they're increasingly becoming a smaller and smaller group, as as uh, the representative just pointed out, and so they're more like-minded. But how do they increase, the, I mean, in that environment, how do Democrats get anywhere in, in the it's, House or Senate, especially not, the House? It's not rocket science. And when... Every two years when new folks come in, I have the same chat with them one-on-one. And that is, again, it's not rocket science. You can find allies in the Republican majority that you can go to and pitch your issue to. And, you know, believe it or not, there are a lot of folks that agree with a lot of things that we want to do. Take, for example, um, the, uh, the city earnings tax. You know, it, 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 we, it was tried to pay, be painted as a Republican-Democrat thing. Republicans want tax relief. Bad city of St. Louis. Bad Kansas City. Republicans want tax relief. Let's kill it. Where in reality, we worked with a lot of Republicans in the majority to try and kill it or to try and modify it. In fact, um, there, there was some was, pretty— Was the argument mainly local control? Yes. Yeah, and, and, and again, you've, you've highlighted what, what, what I will tell folks to do is there are some standard Republican tenets, one of them being local control. So parlay your issue into one of those standard Republican tenets, like local control, and sell it to somebody. You know, nobody has to know that the bill that Caleb Jones has was really a Mike Colonna bill. Let Caleb pick it up, take it, and run with it. He can get all the glory. Who cares? But we got that issue fixed. And I will tell you, when it comes to the practice of law, the courts, the criminal code, the civil code, I've worked very well with Republicans on, hey, here's a problem, here's an issue, do your diligence. But, you know, from a Republican tenant standpoint, what's happening now is against freedom. So let's fix this so people can have more freedom. And it works. 
you know, don't come into the General Assembly and think just because from the, you're from the other party, we can't have issues that we agree on and fix. So it's that old adage. You never have permanent friends or enemies. What you have are permanent, permanent issues interests. that you can agree with and move forward on. I do want to ask, though, about kind of the diminishment of the rural Democratic Caucus, because when I started covering Missouri— There isn't one. Well, let me continue, <laughs> sorry, Joe. Sorry, <laughs> When I started covering the Missouri <laughs> legislature in 2006, most of Northeast Missouri—this is the example I bring up all the time—had a Democratic legislative delegation, both in the Senate and the House. It, this was the case up until 2010. Now you have a situation where not only are there no more Democrats in Northeast Missouri in the legislature anymore, the Democrats aren't even fielding opponents against Republicans. Well, let me, and, let me, and, I, and even in Jefferson County, which is heavily historically Democratic where you're from, you have places where they, they're not fielding candidates either. Okay, so, now, what do you, now, so now now, now you go. Now, now, now you're giving me three <laughs> points to fire sure. back at. Sure. Let's talk about Jefferson County for sure. a moment. When the Chrysler plant closed, and you had a lot of working class Democrats move out of Jefferson County, it, it tilted the electorate somewhat. How much? I think this election will really tell us whether or not Jefferson County has actually gone red <coughs> or whether or not it's still a purple county. Yeah. So t only time will tell, as the Asia song will remind us. <laughs> now, going back to losing rural Democrats, yeah. um, you have to point to two things. One, gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. Let's be real. A lot of districts are gerrymandered to favor the Republican Party. That's okay. That's part of the game. The other issue that people don't talk about is what I will call a cult of personality. And and you may find it odd for me to say this, but you know the, the House Republican Campaign Committee, up until this election cycle for my entire tenure, really has been run by two people. And that would be my good friend, former Representative Scott Dekas, and a uh, Republican operative by the name of John Ratliff. Ratliff, furious, furious campaigner, take no prisoners. Scott, great at finding good candidates, even candidates who a month before would have run as a Democrat, but now all of a sudden are Republicans. So Scott would find the candidates, Scott would make sure they were funded, and Ratliff would do what was necessary to make sure for those folks to win. Well, Scott and John have now peeled off from the Republican campaign, campaign committee. And have really? set up their own option. Yeah, have set up their own shop. Okay. So now it's being run by a different crew of folks. So that cult of personality, I think, that really, really helped, dominated, controlled that recruitment slash winning machine, mm -hmm. are now doing other things. I do want to push back a little bit about gerrymandering, though, because Jim Hansen, for example, is in a state representative district that includes Monroe County, Pike County and Rawls County, which are three of the most historically Democratic counties in the entire state. If you would have told me six years ago that not only would a Republican win that district, but the Democrats weren't even fielding candidates, I would have said well, you were crazy. So, but, is it, so, so I want to just ask you, sure. is it partially that they're just the Democrats aren't recruiting, aren't doing enough to recruit candidates, essentially? Yeah, he's dancing and right now. And have they been, okay, Barack Obama. Ooh, we forgot about the scary black man in D.C. No, and, and that, that was I'm part of the toolbox. I'm talking strategically. I want to No, no, and that was part of the toolbox that the House Republican Campaign Committee used. But now we don't have the scary black man anymore to foil against everything. Now we have the dishonest woman. So it's, you know, let's see if we can shift 
<laughs> if the Republicans can shift to that. No, that's my but, point. Yes. But 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 Jason, what you have actually done mm -hmm. is backed up my argument yeah. about good candidate recruitment. Mm -hmm. Forget about the fact that Jim Hansen is a Republican. Mm -hmm. Jim Hansen has been a member of that community for decades. Mm -hmm. He ran a business in that community. People know Jim as Jim, mm -hmm. not as Jim the Republican. So That's you find true. that good candidate, you run that good candidate, and then are the Democrats going to have a hard time fielding a candidate in that neck of the woods? Yes. yes. Why? Not necessarily true because Jim is a Republican, but because Jim is Jim. And everybody knows him, everybody trusts him, and that's the person that they want in Jefferson City to make sure that he's looking out for their and interests, sure regardless of his party identity. Gonna, I was just going to say, this probably has replicated all across rural Missouri, and that's just, that is just kind of the, the barriers for the but, Democrats to go But, but I would be remiss if, if I didn't come back around and remind the listeners and, and, and remind you guys that— that's an issue that, that Attorney General Chris Coster has really tried to hit hard. Yes. To remind rural Democrats that their party has not abandoned them. That uh, Chris will go to outstate Missouri, and he, he brings other Democrats with them. Look, the Republican Party has gone off the deep end. Remember your roots. Remember those conservative Democratic values that you have down deep. That blue dog streak. Give us a chance. We're not ignoring you. We haven't abandoned you. Your new Republican Party has. So please come back home. So, okay, looking ahead, as I said, I've been kind of critical of some of the Democrats' statewide recruitment, aside from Coster, but, I mean, you know, further down mm -hmm. the ballot. But, I mean, when you're looking at things in November, and granted, you're not going to be running for something in November, but just kind of your thoughts, you know, looking at it, you know, from an analysis standpoint, is there any time within the next 20 years where you see um, Missouri Democrats um, gaining, gaining control of the legislature. Gaining or doing well. I mean, because Coster, um, who is favored for governor right now because he has the most money and some other things, but the point is there aren't a whole lot of Costers in the Democratic Party right now. Well, to quote um, another artist, <laughs> Sticks. <laughs> I think um, in, in the near future, we're going to have too much time on our hands, meaning, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, you have folks like me who are termed out. And we know it is important to continue to help, not just in the recruitment process, but in the funding process. So you're still going to have folks like Representative Gina Mitten who are out there swinging the bat, trying to make sure that the folks we have on the ballot stay on the ballot and that they have enough funding to, to put forward a competitive campaign. But this is where, this is where looking to the future – I'm really excited, and here's the reason why. It is obvious the Attorney General Coster knows how to raise money. It is obvious that Attorney General Coster knows that reaching out to rural Missouri and to try and reopen those bridges to folks is extremely important. But I predict, knock on wood, that former Congressman Russ Carnahan will be our next lieutenant governor. And as you know, that job is not all that demanding. He's going to have time on his hands, too. I think... Folks in rural Missouri can look to Russ, even with his voting record in D.C., which has been pretty progressive. And remember that Russ, down deep, at the end of the day, is a rural Democrat. And if and it's another one of those, those cult of personalities where people trust Russ, regardless of his party ID. You voted with Barack Obama in D.C., doesn't matter. We know you. We trust you. I mean, if you think about Rolla, you know, where he grew up. Those are the folks that know Russ and are going to vote for us. That will parlay into, I hope, 
rural Democrats in the next couple election cycles saying, you know what, I can do this. And I can go to a rural Democrat like Russ and ask him, hey, you know, how do I do this? Give me give me a leg up. And Russ will do that. Yeah, but there's been an argument that down ballot, I mean, and I'm not knocking any particular candidates, but just looking at it for, for treasurer, even attorney general and secretary of state, that the Democrats may be behind you know, be behind the curve that the Republicans are considered in all three of those races, you know, without getting into the personalities, that they may have an edge. And um, well, and that's what they said about Clint Zweifel, and that's what they said about Jason Kander. So it's it's between now and the general election, it's an you know, this is an eternity in politics. Oh yes, yeah, that's true. But I'm just kind of playing devil's now, advocate. Now we're running out of time. What's your future look like at this point? My future, I tell you what, I am really looking forward to getting back to private life. Um, again, when new members come in, I, I try and, and, and give them a speech. And part of the speech is, look, time is limited. You know, you have to continue your job at home to put food on the table. You can't ignore this job in Jefferson City because your, your constituencies trust you to come down here and do your job effectively and efficiently, which takes time. But you can't ignore your family at home. Unfortunately, what, what gives when putting food on the table and doing your elected representative job takes up too much time, what gives is that time to the family. So what I'm looking forward to the most is going back home and spending time with family, taking a little bit of time off, whether it's traveling, whether it's gardening, you know, whether it's painting, um, whether it's a family vacation, it doesn't matter. But I, I really want to take some time off. Uh, I'm going to apply for a judgeship, but use that time to figure out what my next move is, if indeed there is you, a next You will move. not be running for sheriff mayor. You know, sheriff mayor, that's pretty interesting. Here's what I love about that. Here's what I love about that. I, uh, I ran for office because my committee people said, hey, Mike, you should do this. They were deputy sheriffs. Working in that courthouse <laughs> for 22 years, I have a great working relationship with them. And you know what? If, if I were still a uh, citizen on the street, I would have gotten to that race early, and that would have been my first And, and we're talking about sheriff for real. But, but right, anyway. sheriff Okay, for real. but just to quote the Rolling Stones, what you're yes. basically saying is, time is on my side. <laughs> time is on my side. And there's a whole other election cycle coming there, down in 2017. There, there is. There is. And, well, thank you very much for appearing on our show. We look forward to your declaration of being the next sheriff mayor of St. Louis. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at, at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I believe we can follow you on Twitter at Rep. Mike at, Colonna. At Rep. Mike Colonna. The only one official Twitter handle for me. Oh. Are you going to have to change it in a few weeks? Uh, you know, I consulted with Speaker Jones about that. And, um, <laughs> you know, it seems to be working pretty well for Timmy, so I'll probably just keep my handle as well. Well, I, I'm sure that Missouri politicos are overjoyed by that announcement. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>